like our Bet Girl podcast, please take the time to write a review on iTunes. We always appreciate the feedback. Thanks so much. If you practiced where Bet Girl has, you'd hate Lyme disease as much as we do. Having practiced in all the tick-infested states like New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, etc., I've seen a lot of Lyme disease. That said, only a small subset of Lyme-positive dogs, about 1-2%, to go on to develop severe, life-threatening complications from Lyme disease, the dreaded Lyme nephritis. So in today's Fat Girl podcast, we'll discuss this rare complication, Lyme nephritis. In a state-of-the-art review published by the Journal of Veterinary Emergency Critical Care in 2013, Dr. Merrill Lippman from University of Pennsylvania reviewed Lyme nephritis, a condition resulting in protein-losing nephropathy, what we'll call PLN from now on. For those veterinary professionals practicing in the top 13 Lyme states, we're all too familiar with this devastating disease, along with all the complications associated with the pathogenesis, including renal failure, cavitary effusion, thromboembolism, and hypertension. For more information on Lyme disease, check out our other Vet Girl podcast too. Borrelia burgdorferi, the tick-borne agent associated with Lyme disease, is a gram-negative unicellular spirochete. While it's rare for Lyme nephritis to develop in dogs, golden retrievers and Labrador retrievers appear to be overrepresented. In a study published by Lippmann et al. in 2006, more than 80% of retrievers diagnosed with PLN were also positive for Borreliosis. Based on the available data, a previous history of lameness has been reported in up to 28% of the cases. For more information, make sure to download the free ACVAM consensus statement on Lyme disease. Currently, the exact pathogenesis of Lyme nephritis remains unknown. Lyme nephritis, or sometimes called Lyme nephropathy, results in type 1 membranoproliferative glomerular nephritis, characterized by diffuse tubular necrosis and lymphocytic plasmacytic interstitial nephritis. Immune complexes and positively charged antigens deposit in the subendothelium of the glomeruli, promoting an immune response and complement activation. Very few Borrelia organisms or DNA are found in the renal tubular cell on histopathology. While Lyme disease can be experimentally induced in dogs, Lyme nephritis has not been experimentally induced, making it a harder disease to study. In an experimental group of dogs, a group of adult beagle dogs showed no signs of disease for more than one year after infection despite all having positive Lyme tests. Puppies between 6 to 12 weeks of age showed self-limiting mild signs of disease somewhere between 2 to 5 months, typically in the limb closest to where the ticks were attached experimentally. All individuals in the study became carriers of Lyme, but no evidence of renal injury or PLN was reported. Clinically, Lyme nephritis can result in the following presentation. Renal failure with signs of PUPD, uremic halitosis, weight loss, oliguria, anuria, vomiting, dehydration, etc. Gastrointestinal signs such as vomiting, diarrhea, anorexia, hypersalivation, and melana. Hypertension showing itself as spontaneous bleeding, like epistaxis, sudden blindness from retinal injury, or acute CNS dysfunction from hemorrhage, coagulopathy, resulting in thromboembolism, respiratory distress, due to pulmonary thromboembolism, etc., hypoalbuminemia, acute central nervous system dysfunction, pleural, pericardial, peritoneal, or peripheral edema, and even exercise intolerance. So, 
How do we diagnose Lyme nephritis? Currently, there are no commercially available tests specific for not Lyme nephritis, just Lyme disease. We make the diagnosis based on the presence of proteinuria, an elevated urine protein creatinine, clinical signs, history, at-risk breeds, and being seropositive for Lyme disease. Confirmation based on renal biopsy, which we'll discuss later, is important, but is less commonly clinically performed. Again, the majority of dogs with high Borrelia titers do not suffer from PLN or other clinical signs. Again, it's estimated that less than 1-2% to of dogs that are seropositive for Lyme disease go on to develop Lyme nephritis. That's likely because Lyme disease is overdiagnosed as a result of diagnostic testing in seroprevalent regions, in other words, those 13 states. Some of the common ways of testing for Lyme disease include the SNAP 3DX, 40X, and 40X Plus made by IDAX. This is an in-house qualitative test that detects antibodies for the recombinant protein C6 after natural exposure occurs. A positive test can be obtained before lameness is noticed, approximately three weeks or more after acquiring the spirochete. Keep in mind that this test is very accurate and that you do not get a positive test from the Lyme vaccine. Another test is a Lyme Quant C6. This is a qualitative test providing actual levels of antibodies against recombinant protein C6. The third test is a multiplex test by Cornell. This is a Western blot and provides quantification of antibodies against other Lyme antigens, including OSP-A, C, and F. Unfortunately, depending on what type of vaccine you're using, it doesn't differentiate between natural exposure and vaccine-induced antibodies, as half of the Lyme vaccines available today contain the antigen OSP-A and C. The last test is the Acuplex-4 by Antec Diagnostics. Per the company, they claim that it can detect antibodies on an average of one to two weeks earlier than other tests and differentiates individuals between natural and vaccine seropositivity. Again, keep in mind that the incidence of seropositive dogs in your area will depend on prevalence. A positive test does not necessarily mean that the dog will develop clinical signs of Lyme disease and may not necessitate treatment. A definitive diagnosis of Lyme disease is commonly achieved based on the clinical pathological presentation in endemic areas in seropositive dogs. Other causes of protein-losing nephropathy must be ruled out. In other words, immune-mediated versus non-immune-mediated causes of glomerular nephritis. Ideally, renal biopsy should be performed early in the course of disease to best identify the underlying cause. Renal biopsies are safe to perform and provide meaningful and therapeutically helpful information when done early in the course of disease. Lyme nephritis is characterized by a membranoproliferative glomerular nephritis, and there are other causes of glomerular nephritis, in other words, non-immune mediated. So it's important to identify the appropriate cause to aid in appropriate therapy. Contraindications for renal biopsies include thrombocytopenia, hypertension, and coagulopathies. Often, antithrombotic agents such as aspirin should be discontinued for a short period of time before the procedure, typically three to five days. The ideal place to have these biopsies processed is at the Texas Veterinary Renal Pathology Service. Alternatively, the Ohio State University Pathology Service can be utilized. Coordination with these centers is advised before samples are collected. When it comes to treatment for Lyme nephritis, a consensus statement specifically looking at the treatment of Lyme nephritis has not been achieved. Lyme-positive dogs should be evaluated for proteinuria. Ideally, 
A Quat C6 is performed pre and post treatment in these Lyme positive dogs with proteinuria. Treatment is advised for those Lyme positive dogs with proteinuria and should include appropriate antimicrobial therapy, such as doxycycline. Many dogs will continue to show positive results in quantitative and qualitative testing, regardless if they are treated or not. Seronegativity should not be expected as the goal of therapy, but quantitative C6 levels can be used as a therapeutic guideline. A six-month post-therapy quantitative C6 reduction by 50% may warrant discontinuation of antibiotics. Aggressive therapy is advised early in the disease process in dogs diagnosed with Lyme disease, PLN, and acute kidney injury. Treatment of dehydration and hypovolemia is controversial. Those patients with severe azotemia and dehydration carry a worse prognosis. The subcutaneous route for fluid administration is sometimes preferred in those dogs that are mildly to moderately dehydrated, that are eating and drinking, and when there's no increased fluid loss in vomitus or diarrhea. Complications associated with intravenous fluid therapy include worsening of protein loss, hypoalbuminemia, and decreased oncotic pressure, which can exacerbate edema, fluid accumulation, and increase the risk of thromboembolic complications. Artificial colloid therapy, such as head starch, vet starch, etc., is commonly a choice of clinicians for patients with low protein levels and effusive conditions. Complications associated with this fluid choice include coagulopathies, iatrogenic fluid overload, hypertension, and acute kidney injury. Fluid overload and oliguria are commonly treated with diuretics. Hemodialysis and renal replacement therapy is indicated in those dogs that develop oliguria or anuria or have persistent hyperkalemia or fluid overload that's not responsive to diuretics. In oliguric or anuric patients, the use of a diuretic may be necessary, such as furosemide. If a response to furosemide is noticed, such as increased urine output, a CRI may provide better results than pulse therapy. Potassium-sparing diuretics, such as spironolactone, may also provide additional diuresis for the management of effusions. Angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, what we'll call ACE inhibitors from now on, may help by decreasing proteinuria due to its effects in the afferent and efferent renal arterioles. Angiotensin II receptor antagonists, such as losartan, can also be used when patients are unresponsive to ACE inhibitors. Lastly, antihypertensives, such as amlodipine, a commonly used calcium channel blocker, may be necessary. Personally, Fecrol doesn't think this one works well in dogs and prefers hydralazine instead. Once the renal biopsy confirms the presence of immune complex deposition, immunosuppressant therapy is advised. Immunosuppressive therapy could be empirically initiated based on the clinical suspicion of immune-mediated protein-losing renal disease, and in those patients that are not good candidates for renal biopsy or those situations where finances may not allow for the procedure. The ideal therapeutic regimen is unclear at this point, and what works for one patient may not work for others. Certain immunosuppressives may include methylprednisone, sodium succinate, followed by prednisone, azathioprine, chlorambucil, or even mycophenolate. With Lyme nephritis, immunosuppressive therapy is typically continued for several months before attempting to wean the patient off them. Side effects of steroids include gastrointestinal disturbances, such as ulceration, muscle weakness, hypertension, PUPD, hypercoagulable states, and polyphagia. Azathioprine may increase the risk of pancreatitis and gastrointestinal disturbances. Mycophenolate can result in gastrointestinal signs, bone marrow suppression, and increased risk of infection.
In those animals that survive, the author of the study recommended rechecking urinalysis and blood work every one to two weeks. This depends on a case-by-case -case basis, as sicker dogs may need to be evaluated more often, or those that are responding well to therapy may be evaluated less often, as treatment and monitoring can be costly. Urinary protein losses are monitored via sequential urinary protein creatinine ratios. Ideally, a urine sample is collected daily for three days. A small aliquot of these samples can be pulled together and submitted for analysis. So, how do we prevent Lyme disease and Lyme nephritis? Lyme nephritis can be prevented by preventing the infection of ticks that harbor Borrelia. Very few dogs that are carriers of Borrelia do develop clinical signs of lameness, and even fewer of those develop Lyme nephritis. Tick repellent products are recommended, as well as products that kill the ticks after attachment. Ideally, a fast-acting tick kill is imperative. In other words, killing in less than four to eight hours to minimize the risk of transmission of Lyme disease, something like Brevecto or Nexgard. Overall, this state-of-the-art review was a well-written summary by a well-known authority in the subject describing the data available regarding Lyme nephritis and describes the clinical significance of the available tests in institutions that perform them without a bias. We know it's frustrating, but not even the top authorities have figured out the pathogenesis and pathophysiology of Lyme nephritis. In the meantime, prevention, prevention, prevention.